Welcome to Season 2 of History, Books, and Wine. We're your hosts, Lori Ann Bailey and Eliza Knight. We love sharing, so pour a glass of vino, and let's dive into the past. Today, we're excited to have a guest joining us, author Evie Hawtrey. On this episode, we'll be talking about the Great Fire in London, a famous architect, the Royal Court, and London's detectives. Welcome, Evie. Hi, good to see everyone. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Before we dive into this intriguing episode, first, what are we drinking? Evie, why don't you go first? Well, I would say that um, in my dual timeline novel, Detective Nigella Parker is a big wine fan, and so am I, especially a good red. And so yes. I have a lot of reds during the book, including one of my favorites, which is a very nice full-bodied Amarone, which I got hooked on the first time I went to Venice. But in honor of this being a London-set crime novel, I am going with that most British of all drinks today, and that's gin. I'm Ooh. not drinking straight, because drinking it straight would be very bad indeed for your listeners. Um, and I've actually <laughs> mixed it into one of my favorite cocktails, which is kind of a floral thing where I pair it with... Lavender syrup, Saint Germain, fresh lemon juice, and a spritz of Lebanese rose water. Oh, wow. I'm using botanist gin, which is a Scotch gin, and it's uh, made on the Isle of Skye, and they used forged ingredients for it. But never fear, I have a really good British gin, Tangeray, and of course a York gin, because I'm a Yorkaholic. Um, I have their Old Tom, which they won uh, an international award for both in 2020 and 2021. So my sideboard in the dining room is just groaning with gin. Ooh. That, that sounds, sounds awesome. amazing. I I have a bottle of gin that I won, uh, oddly enough, from my child's elementary school a few years ago. And I have no <laughs> idea what to do with gin. I usually don't drink it. So maybe sometime I'll take your recipe and and Oh, I'd love to give it try to you. That. I actually got it by persuasion my daughter got it by persuasion she lived on the upper west side of manhattan and we had a favorite restaurant there and this was my favorite cocktail and she eventually sweet talked the bartender into giving her the recipe to pass to me so it's it's Ah, really good so this is even a secret recipe so so i I definitely i'm gonna need this and i am also a red girl and i drink a lot of cabernet sauvignon and today i'm just going classic i love the apothic brand and i love now that they have the apothic cab uh it's kind of dark in my office but let me see if i can read a little bit of what's on the bottle it says immerse your senses in this smooth cabernet hints of jammy dark fruit and aromas of vanilla blend with a silky smooth texture that boldly lingers on the palate from the makers of apothic wines the alluring twist on cabernet sauvignon pairs with your night wherever it takes you Ooh, yeah i want to know where it's gonna to take you now yeah where's the adventure <laughs> hopefully oh. lots of great places or maybe even bed early tonight because i didn't yeah. sleep well last night <laughs> oh no in light of our um guest author today being a uh writing crime and mystery as well as historical i am drinking a 19 crimes red blend and it's not particularly my favorite wine but it is pretty cool if you have the app 
for the brand. You can hold it over the wine label and the face of the criminal on the label will come to life and say something to you, which is super creepy. Oh, that is really creepy. Yeah, so I thought that would be an interesting thing to have. That's awesome. I've had a bottle of that wine before, but I, and someone told me to use the, or to scan it or do something and I didn't. And now I regret it. Yeah. (laughs) You'll have to get another bottle just so you can try it. Or at least download the app and then when you're at the wine store, just hold it over the bottle. I hope they're careful in their choice of criminal. Because (laughs) there are some criminals that could completely put you off a good glass. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, I'm leaving this one behind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! Alright, so we're going to jump right into our questions. The favorite part of our show besides the wine. So here's number one. In 1666, which actually seems like a really superstitious date, so that's kind of creepy, uh, London went up in flames. Do uh, we know what started the fire and what the extent of the damage was? We do, or at least I do after writing this book, because I love to research <laughs> that's part of the historical fiction genre's greatest gift. It was a superstitious date, and people were very worried about it in advance of the new year. We had a lot of Londoners quaking in their boots because they're seeing the devil's number, 666, at the end of the year. And you've yeah. got people leaning into that. You've got um, almanac writers leaning into that. Everybody's expecting God's wrath. We're going to have God's wrath. We're going to have God's wrath. And then you have a giant fire. And there were a lot of people willing to say that was God's wrath, but we know, and actually most of the people that we would have wanted to hang out with in those days, like the royal court, knew from the beginning this was an accident. And it did actually start on the grounds of a baker's, um, Thomas Fariner's Bakery. But what's interesting is, for almost the whole 350 years since the fire, everybody thought that was in Pudding Lane. And Pudding Lane did border his property, but then they discovered later that it was on his property but elsewhere. So for all that time, uh, they'd been off. And then a House of Commons clerk found some documents from the time and was actually able to locate the real spot. Hmm. I think what's kind of tragic is a lot of people were, maybe because of the number in the year as well, they just could not accept that this was an accident. Yeah. And you had like crazy conspiracy theories, which kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Crazy conspiracy theories, mostly centering on the French and the Dutch, who the British were fighting. But one of one of them's very personal to me because I have a character in the book, my book, named Etienne Belland, who was part of a father-son team that created fireworks for Charles II. And he was actually accused in writing by some shopkeepers of lighting all of London on fire using supplies that he really had bought to create fireworks. Mm. And oh. he wasn't tried or anything um, because eventually what happened was a very mentally ill young man a Huguenot, he confessed, basically. Uh, and he changed his confession many times. And basically, the, the judge 
who he was, who presided over his trial, the members of the royal court, even the king, they all believed it was accidental. They said that publicly, but he was still convicted and he was hanged. And I think all of that happened because all these Londoners who'd lost so much, they had to have somebody to blame. Yeah, that's that's awful. But yeah, I can right. I yeah. can see that during that time, you know, with with all the superstitions going around and people, you know, uh, uh, how many people lost their livelihoods and needed right. someone to blame. It's it's an awful situation. But I don't really think it's specific to them. I think it's specific to human nature. Humans still want to blame somebody. They they mm-hmm. whether it's God or man, they want to blame someone. And these losses were enormous. So London burned for about four days. Wow. And yeah, that's incomprehensible. And when it was over, pretty much eighty percent of London as it existed within the city walls was gone. Just gone. And that that's meant crazy. that yes, about thirteen thousand two hundred houses were either burned or they were Oof. pulled down to make fire breaks. And somewhere between 70,000 and 80,000 Londoners were now homeless. And more salient to the architectural points we're going to discuss coming up, 87 churches were either destroyed outright or they were damaged beyond saving. And you just mentioned livelihoods, Lori. The, the London guild, the trades, their guild halls, their stock, that was destroyed. At the time, and near the time, the Earl of Clarendon said that the value or an estimate of what had been devoured um, over and above the houses could never be computed, but I've read historians who kind of bravely been willing to estimate, and they've suggested the losses exceeded nine million pounds oh. in the in the currency. It, you know, I don't know what that would be by today's standards, but then it would have been apocalyptical. Yes, absolutely. I'm look it up, and then I'll tell you. Well, 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 she's I mean, looking that up. I pretty quickly labeled the Great Fire, and still to this day, if you say the Fire of London or Great Fire of London, everyone knows which one you mean because it was just it changed everything. Yeah. Um, so while Eliza is looking that up, I'll move on to our next question. Sir Christopher Wren was charged with rebuilding some of London after the Great Fire, specifically St. Paul's Cathedral, which survived the Blitz of London, by the way, during World War II. What is different or special about Wren's building than others? I think we, we have to back up a little and, and we have to acknowledge that at the time of the Great Fire, Christopher Wren was an amateur arch- architect and he was a professor of astronomy at Oxford University. And he was just working on his first actual architectural commission, which was a theater at Oxford. So he spent about two years on a commission and, and he was he was punching above his, weight on, above his weight on this commission because there were very famous architects on it. They were consulting on what was to be done about the existing St. Paul's which was falling to ruins, but they could have debated that for a long time. So it really took this act of God, the fire of the Great Fire of London, and the subsequent rebuilding of London to make Wren what we remember him as today, which is this very influential, very famous architect. I think what had what made Wren special was vision. So he didn't think small. So even when he was on the committee for St. Paul's and everyone else was saying, let's renovate it, let's renovate it, we can patch it up. He's like, let's knock it down. Let's knock it down and do <laughs> yeah. something no one's ever seen before with a giant dome. Um, he was basically living in a or in a London on this commission because he didn't live in London full time. That was largely medieval and Tudor, still in style, and he was trying to channel 
what I guess you could call London or British-influenced Baroque, which was what was to come. So that was exciting. But I also think, he, I mean, Charles II was very taken in with his vision, but he didn't get to execute all of it because his plan for the whole city was just wildly ambitious and it would have involved a lot of land owned by private landowners. But I sometimes like to say I think his success isn't just due to the quality of his work, it's due to the quantity. So after the fire, he designed plans for 52 churches in the city of London alone. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's like amazing. And if you look at some of his iconic stuff in London, which people will recognize, St. Paul's Cathedral, which you mentioned, which has this daring dome, which at the time people were saying, oh, that's very papish, that's very Catholic, you can't have that. And it had actually been influenced a little bit by St. Peter's in Rome, and more specifically by Sainte Marie de la Visitation in France. Mm-hmm. But he also did Marlborough House, which is the London residence of the Duke of Marlborough, which is really close to Buckingham Palace, if anyone's seen it. Mm-hmm. He did Kensington Palace. He did the monument to the Great Fire itself. He did the Royal Chelsea Hospital. He did the Temple Bar. And he did, mm. like I mentioned, just dozens of churches. Um, and one of the things that is really iconic about a Wren church, like if you visit St. St. Vedast in Fleet Street, or you visit St. Mary LeBeau, you're going to notice very tall spires. Matt, that's kind of one of his signature features, a really tall spire, and then kind of balancing neoclassical style with Gothic elements in his church hmm. architecture. That's awesome. You're going to be, people are going to remember you. Cause yeah, lot. for sure. <clears throat> it's like his signature. Yeah. So I did find out that nine million pounds back then was worth about... 946 million pounds today. It's almost a billion dollars. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. So speaking of Charles II. Let's rebuild it all, if you think about it. Right? I mean, That's so much damage. So much damage. Think, oh, I'm just going to walk away. This is just, right. Raz yeah. the city. We'll, we'll build somewhere else to start over. Right. Yeah. Um, so Charles II, who you mentioned, um, ruling during that time, was also known as the Merry Monarch, which I don't know if you know what that it came from but uh my question is it's this time period was known as the restoration and i'm pretty sure it's not because they were restoring the city um what do you have to say about that well it actually is refers to the restoration of the monarchy in england okay because we're coming out of the period with two really bloody seemingly endless british civil wars english Mm -hmm. civil wars and King Charles II, who was on the throne in my book and at the time of the fire, his father, Charles I, was ultimately tried in the name of the people of England um, <laughs> and found guilty of high treason by a high court of justice that had actually been set up specifically for that purpose. So he's declared guilty, he's sentenced to death, he's executed by beheading in wow. January of 1949, while his son Charles is on the continent. I can't remember if he was in France at that point, but he was on the continent. Mm-hmm. So from that time, from the time that the head came off Charles I until the time that Charles became Charles II, um, and he returns from his exile on the continent, and he's restored to the throne in 1660. So his father's executed, executed in 1649, he's restored in 1660. Between them, we have these various Republican governments in England. You think like Oliver Cromwell, the Roundheads. I always think of them as the non-fun people, but I guess maybe I'm like a closet monarchist. I think it's interesting is at the time of the fire, Charles had only been restored for about six years, and he was still relatively young. 
He was restored right around his 30th birthday. So he's only 36 at the wow. time that Lisa his fire. That's a lot to deal with. Right. Yes. And- Yes, it is. Yeah. And he didn't have, I mean, he definitely, and I expressed this in my book, he had mixed feelings about London. I mean, and the population. Those are his people. He has to rule those people. He has a he has a duty to them as, as their monarch, but he's still thinking of them as people who basically killed his father on some Right. Yeah, that had to have been ass. a tough position <laughs> yeah. to be in. Yeah. yeah. So the London police force has evolved over the centuries. What, if anything, has remained the same? Well, first of all, because I'm always this person, I'm going to start out by saying there are two London police departments, and there are two London. And most oh. people really don't know that. So if you Yeah, we're learning all kinds London, of things. Tell us more. <laughs> yeah, you're watching like Sherlock on BBC and he's like doing something in the city or a detective's running from St. Paul to Harrods. I think most people reading or watching don't know the cops are crossing jurisdictions over and over. So in my novel, interestingly enough, the smaller police department is the central one uh, because Detective Inspector Nigella Parker is part of the London City Police. So that's my main focus, even though the crimes are multi-jurisdictional, so that's why she's cooperating with someone from Scotland Yard. So what does the nickname the city in the London City Police mean? And this is kind of mind-blowing. The City of London is an independently governing territory that hmm. basically contains just a smidgen over one square mile. It's actually 1.12 square miles. Wow. Because this is the kind of thing you have to know if you're going to write this book. Yeah, so what yeah that's small. Grime real estate. You're talking about the financial district, which is often just referred to as the city. You're talking about some of the most famous sites like the Tower of London, Tower Bridge, St. Paul's Cathedral. That's all just crammed in to this little square mile. So Greater London is 607 square miles, to give you an idea. And if wow. the city of London is only covering one square mile, and they're the oldest local government the City of London Corporation, and they have their own really gloriously costumed Lord Mayor, and then their own police department. But who is handling the rest of it? Well, that's the police force we always hear about, Scotland Yard, which is Uh. really the Metropolitan Police. And so they get the rest, they get the 606, (laughs) like 605 and three quarters of the rest of it that they have to deal with. Now, when we're talking about how they evolve, when it comes to the London City Police, what's kind of interesting is their territory isn't that much smaller than it started out being. Because initially they came from the watchmen who actually stood on the walls and defended London against people from the outside. Hmm. So that worked for a while. And then in the 13th century, London said, we don't just want to be protected from what's out there. We want to be protected from what's in here. We want you to police the city. So the watch started policing the city inside, and every ward of the city had to provide one man for a term of one year. Hmm. But that really wasn't enough. So by the time you hit the 17th century, say 1663, which is shortly before the fire, there's an official decree in 1663 stating that there have to be a thousand men nightly working the watch. Wow, that's a lot of men. That is a lot. Yeah, but that's still just nighttime. Yeah, yeah. Or they decide they're going to have a city day police, and they establish that. Hmm. And that is the direct ancestor to today's city police, and it complements the night watch. So then things get fighty, because (laughs) in the early 19th century, the British Home Secretary, and a lot of people will recognize this name, Sir Robert Peel, becomes deeply interested in having a more organized form of policing the capital. 
which is obviously like a laudable thing. It's great that he wanted to do that. But, and he founded the Metropolitan Police in 1829. And they were modeled in part on the day police in the city. But then Sir Robert Peel got a little big for his britches. He wanted the city police of London to go inside the Metropolitan Police. And the Lord Mayor and the Corporation of the City of London are like, we're not ceding anything. Because if we start ceding police power, they'll want yeah. our power too. And we have had these rights since the Magna Carta. You're not taking <laughs> yeah. So to, eventually to cement that independence, um, in 1839, 10 years after the Met came into to the imagination to being, they passed the City of London Police Act, which gave the London City Police their current name. And it also, because it recognized them statutorily, it meant they couldn't be subsumed into the Met, and so they're independent to this day. Aren't That's you sorry you asked? <laughs> no. Fascinating. It really is fascinating. Hello, listeners. This is Lori, and I'm here to tell you that podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. We use Buzzsprout. And it's hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. You'll get a great looking podcast website, detailed analytics, and more. Following the link in our show notes, let's Buzzsprout know that we sent you. Get you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan and help support our show. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. The first time I used Instacart was with my sister. We were baking cookies and I'd forgotten the butter. Instacart to the rescue. Now I even use it when we're on vacation so our staples are delivered right to our door. Save yourself that trip to the market. Instacart delivers groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area to shop and deliver groceries from your favorite stores. Follow the link in our show notes, and that lets Instacart know we sent you and help support our show. Plus, you'll get free delivery on your first order over $35. There's multiple stores available in most areas. Shop all your favorites on a single order. The products you love from local stores. Hand-selected by shoppers based on your preferences. Delivery to your door in as fast as one hour. Instacart highlights deals to help you save money. Find everything you usually buy and get smart suggestions for new items. They pick the freshest produce and keep your eggs safe too. Let Instacart shop for you. We're to the point in our uh, podcast where we ask you, what are three fun facts that you've discovered during your research? I'm going to go with gory facts. Oh, yeah. It's crime, it's history, it's mystery, but also I'm going to end up telling you four because I I just love facts. (laughs) So we're talking about this being set in 1666, and it starts before the fire, the historical timeline. And the first fact is there was nothing glamorous about London at that time. We think of London as glamorous. There was nothing. Yeah. You need to think about streets that are filled with waste, like industrial waste, trash, Animal and human feces and urine. Gross. You have to think, there's no zoning. So you're going to build this gorgeous restoration mansion, and it's going to be pushed up right against a charnel house where they're storing the bones of the dead. Oh. The traffic is appalling. The air quality is worse. Mm-hmm. And Yikes. now, the, when my book opens, the royal court has just returned to London. 
because in 1665 there was this outbreak of plague, which is kind of a second fact, but I'm sliding <laughs> it into the first fact. Yeah. Um, it turned out that the plague of 1665 killed one out of five Londoners. Wow. So they are returning to a capital that's kind of eerie. Quiet, mm. and it still smells of the dead. Yuck. Lots now, of tragedies in London. If I have a choice between smelling the dead and smelling feces, I'm picking feces. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too. That's just like disgusting. So I, I would say the fact that we think of London as a glamorous capital, but it wasn't, is kind of my first interesting fact. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the second thing would be how horrifying the fire was. When I started, I'm already afraid of fire, and if anybody reads my book, and, you know, this is the point where you say, please read my book. Um, if anybody reads my book, you'll see that my modern detective has a really specifically rooted fear of fire, and I gave that to her. That's those, the roots of her fear set in a different place and a different time are the roots of my fear. But wow. when I started reaching, researching the Great Fire, I was like, holy heck. Because, first of all, they had fire tornado, like you saw in the fire bombing. What? Threat. Yeah, so this is like these otherworldly cones of flame. They're oh my dancing God. across the city. They're oh, that is scary. Seemingly randomly, which, you know, so no wonder people think that it's divine yeah. math. I wonder if and it had to do with like the tight itself. nature of the buildings and the no, air circulation. It, it, it was the yes, it was the narrowness of the roads. It was the nature of the buildings. It was the fact that there had been tremendous gales ongoing for a week, but it was also the heat. Mm -hmm. So you have these half-timbered houses, and sources that I consulted, I mean, even in the half-timbered houses, it got hot enough to melt lead, it got hot enough to melt glass. But if you get into the areas where you had actual firestorm proportion fire, every single source I looked at confidently said that temperatures were reaching and exceeding 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa. And so to think I just cook my chicken on 350. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like incinerating it. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a fact that blew me away. Like, Yeah, I, that's I wild. They yeah. thought it wasn't fast moving, so hopefully I could have outrun it, but I probably would have frozen in terror, and I just, that would have been it for me. If I yeah. saw a storm, like a tornado of fire coming at me, I would have just collapsed. <laughs> is it, yeah, and I'm envisioning, like, this is Pompeii-level heat. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. It's terrible, and I will throw in there that the uh, list of dead for the fire, which for a long time was very short, was less than 20. Oh, wow. No modern historian believes that anymore. No, because that's not so all. We had rabbit warrens of people in there, and it got so hot, the teeth wouldn't even survive. Right, you so, would never yeah. We're never going to know, but it, 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 and wow. they were the kind of people that, because people had been, there had been censuses, but people had moved, and they just thought, well, they went and stayed with someone else after the fire because they didn't want to come back, but... A lot more people than that died. Yeah, uh, while all this fire stuff is super scary and super gruesome, I want to wrap up my facts with something that has nothing to do with fire. But it is okay. simultaneously, and Eliza knows this because we did an event together once, and she's like, dear God, it has nothing to do with fire. <laughs> but it's simultaneously one of the most disturbing things I've ever discovered in research. Yes. And I like to affectionately call it the worst beauty product ever. Oh, I'm so curious. Oh, I know what this is. It's so not good. That's <laughs> what it is after I name it. It's puppy water. And you're going to put it on your face. What do you think puppy water is? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> well, I should admit, the first time I read about it, I thought, okay, it's urine. It's urine. They want me to put puppy urine on my face because it's something you wash your face in. And then I read that Samuel Pep's wife bought some. And I'm like, yeah, it's got to be dog pee. 
And then I read further, and it is so worse than urine. It's like way, 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 way worse than urine. So basically, when I tell you what it is, everybody out there is going to go, I'd rather wash my face with dog urine. Yeah. So in the 17th century, it was a beautifier, and it was distilled puppy. And there are multiple recipes for this, but the first thing you have to have is dead puppies. So you can get some dead puppies that there are already, or the next time your dog whelps, you can just kill a couple of puppies. Ooh, so it's dead puppy fluid. Yeah, once you have dead puppies in hand, if you're Mm -hmm. a high-class lady, and this is used by a lot of high-class ladies, you're not going to do this yourself. You're going to hand it over to your cook, who at this point hates you, right? Just giving her dead puppies. Yeah. And dead puppies are going to be boiled in olive oil. Now, the real question is, are you going to use earthworms as your extra ingredient? Are you going to roast them first? Are you going to substitute snail shells in instead of worms? Oh, but my anyway, God. Who even is, came up with this? Yeah, this I is insane. Them, but I hate them. And so yes. then you're going to be left with stuff that's going to cool down, and you're going to um, strain it, of course. And you're going to put it on your face. Oh. This wasn't even controversial in Restoration England. And frankly, that little fact had me giving every single woman that I ran into during my character research from that century, the side eye. Yeah. And for readers, is my heroine does not use puppy water. Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Not use puppy water, but that is seriously, in all the years I've done this, because I wrote great historical before writing historical mystery and modern crime, that's one of the, the grossest facts I've ever discussed. It's literally the grossest thing I've ever heard. It really is. And, and I agree with so you. Horrible. I would be about the the puppy pee over the puppy water. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Give right. me all the pee. I will give them water and they can pee just to save their life. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, the thing that I think is interesting too is, you know, obviously Restoration England is nearer to our own time than say medieval. And people right. always think it really gets better. But in a lot of ways, there's some stuff going on in Restoration England that makes me, who previously wrote stuff set in the 1250s and in, you know, the 1570s thinking, oh no, I'd, I'd rather go back and hang with those first people because <laughs> yeah. nobody was boiling puppies to right. on their face. At least they weren't puppy murderers. Oh, uh, the <laughs> poor puppies. So gross. Right. All right. So thank you for those amazing facts. And the yeah, really, they were awesome. Really gross one there. Uh, <laughs> I, I will never forget that now. But why don't you tell us about your book, And By Fire? Oh, well, I would like to describe it as a twisty crime novel in which two extraordinary female detectives, tempered by fire and separated by more than three centuries, have to track down a pair of murderous geniuses who are basically willing to burn the world for their art. So in modern day London, you have uh, Detective Inspector Nigella Parker. I've already mentioned she's with London City Police. And she's basically tracking a killer, serial killer, artist who is making sculptures out of burnt flesh as well as burnt wood and then leaving them around London. I have chills. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the the historical timeline that we've been talking primarily about, um, we have a lady-in-waiting to the Queen of England. Her name is Margaret Dove, and she is ultimately going to go looking for a friend, a bookseller who goes missing during the Great Fire, but instead she discovers there might have been some use the 16th century term devilry in the uh, supposedly accidental destruction of St. Paul's during the Great Fire. And then that leads to the question, did that same devilry lead to murder? And ultimately to the novel's larger question, which is, can these century-old crimes help Nigella Parker catch her modern killer? Um, now, each of my 
female detectives has a sidekick because I like sidekicks and I also I like a little interpersonal relationship in my books. And science yes. alone is going to do it for me. Puppy water is not going to do it for me. So <laughs> Nigella has um, because the, the opening events of the first fatality occur on her ground, which is what. Uh, the British police don't say their turf, they say their ground. So it's mm-hmm. on her ground. But some of the crimes are in larger London. So she's paired with uh, Calm O'Leary of Scotland Yard. So he's a detective inspector at Scotland Yard. He's kind of a wisecracker, but he's also like a profoundly kind and moral person. And they were actually, in the past, their former lovers. And they were lovers until O'Leary made the mistake of saying three forbidden words. Basically, I love you. Oh. And the thing is, Nigella just does not have time for soul-sharing relationships alongside her career because she has to work really hard and really smart to get to where she is in a field that's still male-dominated. Yeah. Um, and when you go back to the past, Lady Margaret also has a male sidekick, and I mentioned him earlier. It's Etienne Balland, who, along with his father, was they were the royal fireworks makers for the for King Charles II, and they actually have something in common, uh, just like my first pair, in that. They both are huge lovers of science. They they are very into science. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they quickly fall for each other. So the impediment there isn't that. What it is is that they're, it's, it's, it's a match that cannot be because Etienne is working class. Lady Margaret is nobility. Etienne is Catholic in a country where Catholic's not cool. Uh, and she's Church of England, of course. And then he's also French. So that's so much is, conflict in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dooming, uh, three dooming characteristics there. So that's kind of that's kind of the short and dirty. But obviously, if people are interested, I have a very long description of the book on my website. Well, I can highly recommend this book. Um, I absolutely love this book, and I'm hoping that you are going to come out with a sequel. I am too, because I, I just have to finish it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, speaking of books, uh, what are you reading right now? I'm actually reading, I just started a new book, and it's called Her Dying Day, and it's my book is with Crooked Lane Publishing, and it's a Crooked Lane sister, Mindy Carlson. Mm. It's not historical, and I love historical. I mean, I love your books. I love historical, but this is a modern-day mystery, and it's a heck of a mystery. I love mysteries, too. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I think she had me with her opening line, which I'm going to quote. Okay, because I was like, okay, you could take me anywhere now that you've given me this line. She said, <laughs> if you've never been stuck under the bed while your lover has sex with his wife, <gasps> I, oh suggest my you, right, I suggest you skip it. <laughs> it's no trip to Disneyland. Oh, that's wow. what I mean. And I was like, okay, you have me. Take me anywhere. Okay, you yeah, yeah, that's I'm a great like, opening. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. All right. So we're going to add that to our uh, to be read piles. <laughs> so, yeah. Where can readers find you? Well, it's almost like readers have to work to avoid me. So <laughs> uh, I am on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, my website is just as you would guess it would be www.evhawtry.com. And um, some of your readers may know me as my former self because I now have two iterations, which is Sophie Perrineau. And I've been yes. writing straight yeah. historical novels for a decade. So if you go onto the internet, you will not get down the first street without tripping over me if you're actually looking. <laughs> well, we love you as Sophie and now as Evie. Yes, we do. Well, I just am delighted that you had me and I have to thank you for that. It's been so much fun. We're it really has happy been. you're here. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with guest Evie Hawtrey. 
Coming up, we're going to be diving into some spooky haunted history. I'll visit the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans. And I'll take us to Slane's Castle in Scotland. Plus, we'll have a special guest author, Catherine Levesque. For more information about today's episode, click on the show notes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HistoryBKSWine for additional historical tidbits and updates. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you download your podcast. That way you're notified every time a new episode is live. Subscribes and reviews help us get noticed. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to check out our episodes published weekly on Tuesdays. Until next time. Cheers and happy reading.